Science Open Science Podcast. I'm Zoe Abram. And I'm Emma Harris. And we're broadcasting to you from Berlin, Germany. So for this week's episode, we're covering the eLife Innovation Sprint 2020. This was an event that happened in September, and it's an annual event where people get together and collaborate on different innovative open science and open software projects. Usually it's in person, but of course this year it was online, which was actually kind of an innovation in and of itself. (laughs) Which seemed to go quite well. It seemed to go very well. So we talked to Emmy Tsang, Dr. Emmy Tsang. She organized the uh, event. And then we had the pleasure of talking to two of the projects that participated. Sai Gen Report and Expanding Open Grants. currently the Innovation Community Manager at eLife. So eLife is a non-profit organization. Um, we probably are best known for running a fully online um, open access journal in the life sciences research areas. But uh, we're actually uh, doing a lot more than running a journal. We care deeply about um, responsible ways for communicating research and part of that is obviously open science. And so um, our mission is ultimately to operate a platform that would promote and encourage the most responsible behaviors in research. So as part of that work, I'm running the eLife Innovation Initiative. So this is an initiative where we want to support the development of open source tools that will advance the ways that we share, communicate, um, discover, evaluate, and consume research. And so what we really want to do here is to not only encourage the development of these tools that will hopefully help researchers, but also make sure that our tools are what the community needs and also are developed in alignment with principles of openness, reusability, and um, modularity so that other people can really come in and build on the work that we've done. So this is exactly what we like to talk to you because you are organizing or uh, taking care of the um, innovation sprint in 2020. And I wonder if you could just tell us a bit more about this event. So um, has this happened before? What came out of it? And uh, what do you hope to achieve this year? I'd love to. Yeah, so um, the eLive Innovation Sprint is an annual event. This is its third edition and the first time we're running this online, so we're very excited uh, about it. Um, In the last two editions, um, so this event is about bringing people together, so researchers and technologists like software developers or web developers, product designers, UX designers, um, community managers, publisher, etc., into the same space so that they could have two days where they would spend all their energy on um, basically turning ideas into prototypes and version ones of products. So um, 
the key of it is really about collaboration and having those open discussions and also working towards something tangible. So really, really hands-on, not just talking about concepts, but really working with with code, with, with you know, um, post-its, for example, with wireframes and trying to develop something that um, is very tangible and testable. So in the last two uh, editions, each of them had 60 participants. And uh, I think both editions, we've managed to have around 14 projects coming out of it. Some of the projects you may or may not have heard of. <laughs> I'm going to try and highlight some projects that, you know, were part of this and were were turned from um, uh, basically just an idea that someone had to, to something that is now real and existing. So Plotted, for example, was a project at the Sprint 2018. So um, the idea is to basically, it's very simple. It's like a like button for research articles uh, and preprints. And so um, the project lead and, and their team there at the Sprint developed this idea of having this browse extension, this widget, which uh, links your ORCID to the research paper's DOI. And so you, everyone can come in and like the, but, uh, like the article and that serves as an alternative way to for people to evaluate papers as opposed to you know impact factor and, and H index and all. So um, that project was supported actually by Eleve Innovation Beyond the Sprint itself, and it's now there's a product you can go to the website to find out more about it. Um, it's it's being integrated into uh, OSF server, um, a bunch of um, archives. So preprint archives, um, and yeah, it's really expanding and and it's really exciting to see something quite refreshing in this area in the community. Um, if I have time, I'd highlight another, highlight another project. So this sure, is, of course, um, Octopus. Um, it's a new. It's really so the project lead uh, came into the Sprint in two thousand and eighteen with an idea to rethink scientific publishing. So if like forget about everything that you ever know about how research is communicated in papers and all that right like what would you imagine science communication and research communication to look like and so they spent two days working on and driving forward this idea of you know really going back to what what a basic unit of research communication is. Is it a paper or is it actually just the hypothesis and methods and data? Are these all separate pieces that can be published separately but linked together? And so at the end of the sprint, they created Octopus, which is a platform that allows you to publish all these different elements. Um, uh, so like a method or a hypothesis and um, the, the platform sort of, has this provenance data that links everything together. So you can still see, okay, this hypothesis is linked to this experiment, which has this method. Um, so that was a, it was a prototype. Of course, in two days, all you can do is, is, is sort of concepts and, and, and ideas and, and wireframes. But after the sprint, um, Alex, the project lead, has really, is really motivated um, and, She's managed to continue to work with a few contributors at the Sprint to really take this project forward. Um, they've got they've gotten since then the Mozilla 
Open Science mini grant, and then some other funding sources from and, and collaborations from, for example, the UK Reproducibility Network. And they have just launched an MVP, I believe, last uh, this year, sometimes a few months ago. So uh, I could definitely check that out. But again, it's it's I think it it these two projects nicely summarize sort of what we try to encourage at the sprint is for people to come together and to have those exchanges of ideas that is very difficult to happen in the day to day in the day to day life. But then once people come together, those ideas really spark and and can really take flight. And then from then on, it's really about, you know, um, having something there to show other people and take and so that, that these projects and these ideas then have a chance to move forward from being just an idea to something that is bigger and potentially um, science <laughs> research changing. Mm-hmm. I mean, this uh, the whole idea of the uh, sprints, innovation sprints or hackathons, uh, it's very on vogue right now. I mean, I, I don't know if that's the same in UK, but at least in Germany, there's now uh, has been this big COVID hackathon and uh, pretty much the same idea behind it, just bring people to work together on something. Um, and it seems to be a very effective way to actually get uh, creativity flowing there in the shortest of time. So Yeah, definitely. But um, can you tell us a bit more about the, um, um, the actual logistics of it? So how do people how do people find each other, and how do you decide which projects are being worked on? Yeah, so this differs um, this year from the last two years. So the sprint for us is a product itself. So we've really taken on the approach of iterating uh, between build, measure, and learn. So this is something that is quite sort of uh, promoted in the areas of design thinking. So what what we're trying to do with the innovation sprint is we're trying to be innovative with it as well. Um, in the last two years, we've learned a lot about, you know, the format that we have. So, for example, last year and the year before, we have this open pitching format where everyone can bring in an idea if they want to and can we have this these lightning talks at the beginning of the of the first day of the sprint where uh anyone who wants to lead a project can um pitch their ideas in in one minute and um then after all these lightning talks uh the the room would just go into team formation so project leads would be approached by contributors who want to contribute and then they would settle down into a team of from two people to 10 people so that's how ideas were selected and teams were formed in the past the big change this year is that we've actually decided to select projects beforehand now this is the fruit of really going back to the participants from the last two years and asking them what's worked and what not so much. While the opportunity to just pitch a project and share your idea at lib is very attractive and very free. So there's a lot of flexibility around this format. Some people find it quite intimidating, especially for folks whose first language, for example, is not English. Or, you know, they traveled half the world, 12 hours, 24 hours, just to reach the sprint on the day of the pitch, they're completely jet lagged. Or, you know, it, it, it doesn't work for everyone. And it demands, 
it selects for a certain quality in the project leads and the type of project as well. So that's why we've decided to try something else this year, just to say, okay, send us your proposal beforehand. You can work as much time as you want on this proposal to make it the way that you want it to be. And then we have a team at eLife where we sat together and say, okay, this is something that we want to, we see a good potential and we want to help drive forward. And what were the criteria for the projects, for the selection? Yeah, so we asked a couple of questions, which essentially is also helping. It's also a process that helps the project leads understand a bit more what they are trying to create. So we asked, for example, what is the problem that you're trying to solve is? It may sound really, you know, no-brainer almost to think that you should consider this. But uh, we, I think in general, a lot of people, especially when they're quite when they're more interested in developing a solution, they forgot about the reason why and who they were designing that solution for in the first place. So we ask, you know, what do you think the problem is? And we look at how you scope that problem, whether it's narrow enough, whether there is a very defined uh, target audience. The other um, question that we also ask is, what do you think your work at the sprint would be? So we look here we look at the feasibility of the work that they want to carry out at the sprint, bearing in mind that it is a two-day event. Um, and then finally, I think the probably one of the most important questions that we ask is, how do you plan to work with the community at the sprint? Uh, in the in the in la- the last two years and also this year, we put a lot of effort into making sure that the participants' pool at the sprint is very diverse. So that's really important for any tool and project development because if you only design something with a very homogenous team, you end up with you usually end up with products that doesn't work for a lot of other people simply because you haven't got those perspectives on the table. And so we really want project leads to take the best advantage of the diversity that is available at the sprint and those perspectives. But coming with working with the diverse teams means that you have to understand what those people can bring to the table and how you can really facilitate them to voice their uh, opinions or, or ideas in a way that feels inclusive and welcoming to them. So is this something that the project leads have to bring naturally or do you have some kind of training for the for the project leads? That's a really good question. So ultimately, in, in, in that process of, of selecting the project proposal, we look at how willing basically our project leads uh, to learn from, from us, from themselves and from other participants. So I think nobody comes in knowing everything about how to interact with everyone or form a community or build a product. The most important thing is that you have to be ready to learn and to be ready to have discussions and, and you know, absorb those other perspectives and turn them into real uh, into decision-making um, processes and, and steps. And so I think that was, was the people that we hope to select for. Um, we then also started uh, offering training um, basically during this month before the sprint for project leads. So we had two training sessions this month, uh, one focusing on um, project management for asynchronous teams. So this is 
this was almost added because we because we had to move online. And then um, the other one was for community engagement. So how do you communicate your projects with other people? Um, what sort of barriers do you think would be would exist for contributors to want who wants to contribute for your, to your project? And understanding these things are extremely crucial to um, ensuring that the project is really open by design. My name is Cassio. Um, I'm originally from Brazil, but uh, I live in Japan now. Actually, I've been in Japan since I started my undergrad studies, and I've been I've finished my PhD here. And now I work in a company called CJS Inc., also in Japan, in Kyoto, to be more precise. And yeah, after I entered this company, uh, it's a company that focuses on software development for supporting research. And then the idea to make the project of Saigon Report, which eventually uh, led me to Sprint, uh, came in, came out, and, and, and yeah, here we are. I guess that's, <laughs> a, that's the short version. That's the short version, yeah. Um, <clears throat> okay, could you tell us about the SignGen Report, what it is and, you know, why you kind of came up with it, please? Sure, absolutely. Um, so Saigon Report, and perhaps I should make a parenthesis here, uh, as you hear I say Saigon with a hard G. Um, mm -hmm. Actually, the name comes from a combination of English, as one might suppose, the Sai for science and G, Gen for generation, genus, gene, or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. It also comes from Japanese. Uh, the word Saigon in Japanese means reproduce or, rep or um, replicate to the, the two words are the same in Japanese. So it's a combination of several languages in this Saigen uh, catchy name that I tried to, to apply there. So, <laughs> and as the Japanese meaning suggests, and which is why I, br I brought it about, it is about uh, the service itself, the website's about reproducibility. So the idea, in a very rough way of putting it, would be essentially review um, service, something like TripAdvisor or Yelp, but focus precisely and specifically on the reproducibility or replicability of papers, of published papers. So you can look for a DOI of a paper, of a research paper, and then you can give your feedback on whether you can or cannot reproduce it, either completely or parts of it and it's open for everyone it is open access open source anyone can look at it and see whether people succeed or not into reproducing a given paper hmm, wow that's um yeah so i mean um how does it how does the actual software work how does the the how does it connect with the the papers and so forth um like uh -huh. what's the what's behind the um, the front end? What's the back end of the mm -hmm. project, I guess? Oh, okay. Um, that's an interesting question. Nobody asked me so far. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's actually it's actually very simple. Uh, what we do is we have um, a database uh, which, is, which, which is filled on demand. So when you look for a DOI, the back end will actually 
first check if this DOI is already in our database or not. And if it's not in our database, it will access a public database to extract the metadata of that paper. So it will go to Crossref and see just the title, um, uh, authors, paper, uh, journal where it's published, references, uh, just this kind of open uh, metadata and copy to our databases so to not overload uh, outside databases. And then, and then in our database, we keep the records of users uh, that users will submit, like, uh, yeah, I, I could reproduce this fairly, or what are the, the drawbacks, what kind of tweaks are necessary, all this the users can input in, our, uh, in their review or report. And, and yeah, we keep this in our database. It's essentially based in PHP, the, the back end. So uh, it is fairly simple. It's available in GitHub, uh, which, is a, which basically uh, manages these kinds of requests. So if you're TripAdvisor, for example, if you put something in and you, and you search for the burger restaurant mm -hmm. around the corner, then TripAdvisor is going to come up and say, well, this and this for reviews have happened. But if I'm searching for a certain publication, is it going to be findable? Um, when, is, is it going to come up that somebody has had has done feedback on it and has tried to tried to do the experiment and has found it either reproducible or not? I see. So, well, essentially, uh, what we, what we're aiming at is to provide this platform so that can people can give this uh, this kind of feedback. So, as long as they give the feedback in a certain paper, it will already be automatically uh, in front of your eyes when you look for the paper. So when you look for a DOI, you will go straight into the review page of that paper. And all the reviews available for it will be there uh, in that listed up on that page. If no review is available, it will also be, uh, uh, it will be written there that there is no review available yet. But that's only accessible if I go to your website, right? Or is right. it linked with the DOI of the publication somehow? No, at, no, at the moment, since we are developing it, uh, independently in the sense of not being directly uh, connected to journals and publishers, uh, it's only available in the website. You, you said um, in your presentation in the uh, eLife Sprint, you said that you want to have this as a third branch to uh, journals and preprints. So I'm, Yes, I did. <laughs> can you elaborate a little bit on that? Uh, absolutely. So um, in my view, what we have now... Um, we have mainly two kinds of um, publications, uh, I would say, which, uh, which are, well, the traditional papers, papers published in journals uh, and pretty much available to uh, anyone who pays a subscription, a subscription fee, unless they are open access. And I guess this is, the, this is still the basic currency for many things in academia, prestige, career, recognition, uh, validation of results, and so on, especially if it's peer-reviewed uh, publication. If it's not, if it's falsely called peer review, we call them uh, predatory publications, predatory journals. But this is still the very core. Then I would call it as the first branch. Um, then we have what I would think of as in a sense a second branch which are which are the preprints um if i'm not mistaken i think archive came first with this in physics and math but uh, we have many 
bio, many other preprint servers now, bio archive, uh, med archive are now very much in, in focus because of COVID-19. Um, but this is, a, as the name suggests, is this that is often called preprint because it is supposed to go through the publication process uh, at some point and then go through peer review and such and such. Uh, so this is like, a, let's say, some, so, some sort of self-publishing for scientists. Then what I mean by the a, a third branch is anything that does not fall on these two umbrella, actually. So I would actually perhaps include in these um, in this kind of third or, or alternative branch uh, some services that do not rely on publication, as there are a few out there. Uh, say there is that uh, I'm not sure if I would say the name correctly. The Octopus thing that is very interesting way uh, of publishing uh, research research uh, findings that is not a, a full paper. There is also um, what I think would be closer to what we are trying to do, services like um, PubPeer, which is uh, often called post-publication peer review. So you have a paper that is out there, published, and people read it and comment on it and so on. And that's exactly what we are trying to do. Uh, not in, in such a, a general way as PubPeer is. We really want to focus on the objective reproducibility aspect on whether a paper is or not reproducible and any extra information regarding it. So I think as we have more and more uh, development of IT and despite inequalities that we know exist, definitely the the... IT technology here in Japan or say our neighbor South Korea is by no means the same as let's say Latin America or Africa. It's still for this for the, the kind of, of uh, data exchange needed for text for a simple website, we're getting more and more ubiquitous IT and more and more participation of researchers everywhere in the world. In, various um, levels of career from students to uh, senior researchers. So I think if we do not, uh, if we do not do anything to go beyond the traditional journal publication, it's just, it, it just doesn't match what we have as the current role situation, you know? So that's why I think we have so many, um, alternatives coming up recently, and we definitely want Saigen Report to be uh, a really solid and reliable alternative when it comes to talk about reproducibility. There are also many cases of many scandals, actually not so many, there are a few, let me rephrase it. There are a few cases of, uh, of fraud and plagiarism and some scandals that perhaps plagiarism not, but fraud and some falsification and fabrication of data, these are often recognized by the lack of reproducibility and lack of replication. So this is one case where we could have really speedy communication if you already have such a place where you can just go and say, 
I cannot make this same cell as this paper in nature, and another person can't make the same cell either, I think you could detect it quite fast, you know, and, and actually have uh, numbers, already crunched down numbers of how many people succeed, how many people fail you, and this kind of uh, of really, I would say, science catalyst in a sense. Mm -hmm. Sounds like a promising project. Yeah. I mean, I guess one of the things, though, is that you, because you were saying about if, you know, one person can't and then another one can't and another one can't, I guess what you need is lots of data. Um, mm -hmm. Because I guess if one person can't, well, you could say, well, maybe they're just doing it wrong or whatever. Um, so the more yeah. people who take part in uh, Saigen, um, mm -hmm. the better. Uh, I, I assume it becomes a snowball effect, so that that it's you know the more that take part, the better the the service becomes. Is is that right? Right, absolutely right. Um, this is something that I try to have a uh, great care, uh, precisely because if just one person or even two say whatever the result they say, if they say that they could or could not reproduce something, it actually doesn't mean much. Uh, even if it's an affirmation like, yeah, I could do the same, it could be just a friend of the author who could have access to the author, make questions, and and had an easier way of reproducing it. Mm -hmm. um, or if the person just say that they couldn't do it, yeah, maybe they just don't know the techniques uh, well enough to reproduce the paper. So right. indeed, uh, you need a lot of people working, uh, a lot of point of views, and all of... All of the point of views are valid also in a sense, because not necessarily, be, just because a paper doesn't have, uh, cannot be reproduced, uh, or because a paper can be reproduced, it doesn't necessarily mean that the one that can't is bad and the one that can is good. So we, also, we try to be uh, careful there uh, to not introduce um, misleading metrics in the website exactly to avoid this kind of misinterpretation. Mm. Mm. Well, that, yeah, no, that's, that's sensible, then. That's good. Um, and I think the, the final thing we wanted to ask you was, um, why did you take part in the eLife Sprint, and what was your experience of doing so? Well, um, so this project, uh, as its core uh, idea, is to have it uh, is to have the participation of the scientific community. So when I when I heard about the sprint this year and I and I saw how the how they fostered the the, the I would say the collaboration of people working in different ways to contribute to to a healthier and more collaborative science, uh, I immediately thought that this went very well with. The notion that we have for for signing a report that it should also be a it's something not uh, automatic, not from not top down, but something collaborative, something from the community. So I guess this was the first catch for me to see this chance for collaboration, and and then well uh, after uh, after I applied to it and and got the particip the participation uh, opportunity. Yeah, I was really uh, happy to see how people are indeed interested 
and collaborating with what they can. And different people will collaborate with different uh, um, contributions. Uh, some of them being quite simple feedbacks, but um, pretty valuable, actually. Um, I am now currently working on the implementation of what we could achieve in improvement during the the during the sprint event and and actually i think we got some very good um steps forward especially regarding user experience and user uh interface that i really i do not think i would come up with all that alone or with just one or two friends i guess the that collaboration that we could achieve there was indeed very much uh helpful and valuable Casio, I do have one question more. Um, yes. I would like to know what your vision for SciGen report is for the next 10 years and which the biggest hurdles you see that are facing you. So one reference that uh, um, I took when I was beginning the project for this, say, foresight, uh, I tried to look for any kind of data on, first of all, how many researchers are out there in the world, how many people could profit from this kind of service. And as one might easily imagine, one good um, comparison is perhaps ResearchGate. It, it's an SNS, but a scientific SNS, so it deals with researchers in a, in a, broad, uh, in a broad range of, of uh, disciplines. And ResearchGate got in 10 years uh, about... 50 million users. Now, since ResearchGate is more generalistic than Saigon Report is, I do not expect to have 50 million users in 10 years, to be honest. But I do hope to have more than 1 million. Uh, this being because, you know, and once again, it's since we're focusing on reproducibility, I'm essentially scaling one order down. Uh, so this is my view uh, to try to help at least one million researchers to actually perhaps polish their CV by registering their contributions, their their work in in reproducibility, or perhaps just by lighten, uh, enlightening people in academia as well as government or even industry on whether that new paper, that new technique, that new technology they are trying to to play with is really worth investing 10000 or 50000 or $100,000 to, to do something based on it, or whether it could just be a waste of money. Um, and yeah, I guess while if we can achieve these kinds of, uh, of uh, contributions to, to various people, I guess that would be a, an excellent measure of success, in my opinion. Now, the hurdle is... As one might expect, the way for the blessing, <laughs> how to get these million users. Um, so growth in the beginning is definitely, for me, in my perspective, the hardest part. Um, once people, as any kind of, of uh, service that depends on this network value, if people are using, people will use. If people are not using, people tend to not use it. So for me, this is the biggest challenge, how to get people to use it and then once you cross a certain tipping point, more people will join in, but we don't know where the tipping point is, and it's really hard to say concretely and clearly how to get there. 
Aisha Datta. I'm a software developer at Crossref. Um, so I help uh, facilitate scholarly publishing, provide um, uh, support services and development services for various um, software that Crossref has. Um, and yeah, I enjoy prototyping new tools and thinking through how to enable better communication and uh, the you know publication processes. Uh, my name is Daniel Nust. I'm a researcher at the Institute for Geoinformatics in Münster, Germany, and I work in a project uh, op called Opening Reproducible Research, where we try to do just that by developing uh, software tools that help researchers to publish not only data and text, but also uh, data and text together with um, the code and the scripts that they write so that they work in a more reproducible way. Sounds great. Okay. Um, and you came to the Sprint Riv uh, expanding open grants. Could you tell us a little bit about what that is and, um, you know, how long you've been working on it and so on? Sure. Uh, Esha, may I start? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for checking. Um, so I this, uh, this Sprint is my first time that I contribute to open grants. Uh, I came across the project, um, I think, about half a year ago uh, when I found um, the website just uh, looking for places where I could publish a grant that uh, we luckily got awarded. And um, we discussed that amongst um, the participants and decided that we want to share our original plans um, so that others might learn from that. And uh, we are also at a point where we are wondering if we really can achieve everything that we promised. Like, uh, when it, well, as it happens in research, uh, sometimes the path that you plan uh, is not the one that you eventually take. Um, and I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm a enthusiast in in the area of open science, so I, I'm convinced that um, research uh, will be better if we work more openly and and don't hold information back for from others. Uh, and sharing grants is, I think, one very interesting aspect to enable more open science. So that's why I immediately liked the project. And uh, the only problem I had was that I couldn't upload our grant because I felt like I couldn't properly attribute the different authors because the Open Grants website at the moment just allows you to add one author with one uh, ORCID identifier. So... Uh, I've made uh, open an issue on the on the um, code repository and suggested what about support for multiple authors, and that was uh, taken up um, very in a very uh, welcoming way by the project maintainers. And then soon after that, I realized that the project is going to be at the sprint. And then I yeah was sort of from that moment on planned to contribute to it during the sprint. Yeah, I, I came into this uh, as a total newbie. I did not know about open grants before joining the Sprint. Um, and when I was looking at the various projects, I was interested in many of them for different reasons. But I, too, am a fan of you know open knowledge and open data um, and kind of opening up um, research and science for everyone. I have a library background, so I'm always a fan of, you know, opening up access to everyone who, who 
has the ability to do so. Um, so that's how I got involved with Open Grants and uh, working with Daniel and how was really easy. And I think we had a good um, group dynamic together. And it was, uh, it was fun prototyping a new tool for that. So could you uh, just walk us through, well, for, for, the, for our listeners, um, so how, how exactly does the Open Grants work? Um, so you, you said a bit, but I mean, say I, I was like, right, this sounds amazing. I want to use it. Where would I start? The, the sort of the big feature that we wanted to develop, and that's, I think, really a game changer for the Open Grants website, and that is that we've um, tried to index the full texts of the grant documents. So right now, there is a little search interface, but it basically only searches the title and the keywords that were given. And uh, we want to make it so that if you type something into the search window, it'll actually go through the full texts of the grant documents. And that, of course, allows you to find much more, yeah, find grants much more effectively as you're used to from uh, well-known search engines and find a grant that's in your area or relay or using the same methods as you maybe are planning to do. Um, but it also makes the whole setup and infrastructure much more complicated. You mentioned in the beginning that you found this project because you were searching for a platform to upload your grant to. Is this is this something common in the research world that that researchers, when they have received grant funding that they upload a grant to some place? Because this is, for me, new. Yes, I think it's not common. Um, that goes back again a bit to what we've said before. It's sort of getting grant money is sort of the, the highest, highest level of achievement that you can have in academia. And especially for uh, young academics uh, such as myself, Getting your first grant is really, really a very hard thing to do. But if you have a first grant, then the second and the third one are a lot easier, not only because you know um, know how to do it, um, but also because, I don't know, there, there seems to be sort of some acceptance that uh, it, or it's, it might be easier for the next grant-giving institution to give you a grant if you already had one from another institution. So it's sort of like a little bit like an exclusive circle that you have to get into if you are um, looking at a career in academia. And that certainly is questionable if that's um, a good thing. Um, But it's sort of the situation that you face uh, as as an early career researcher. So does that also mean that it's going to be difficult to have people um, upload grants or even come to the idea to do this? So is that one of the things that the project also needs to somehow communicate to the research world that there is such a website that's existing and why people should use it? Or do you think that just by it being there, the incentive is is enough? I think the Open Grants website allows researchers to lead by example. And that's a possible way how to yeah, break break up this current secrecy around um, grant getting grants uh, and getting funding uh, based on on grant 
ESO grants. And uh, even if researchers publish them now, um, they might not be findable. And that's, I think, the core uh, feature that the Open Grants website wants to provide is to have a one single place to search for, uh, for grants that have been published. And I'm just trying to think of this practically. So somebody writes a grant and um, it does not get accepted. And a several amount of authors have worked on a grant, right? And then they can decide that they would like to share this with the world because it's important because and how. I guess that's what I want to know. Right. I think it's uh, the, the authors share their grants because it's uh, information that you normally don't get. Um, and um, it's something that's maybe more that's, that's sort of the, the secret behind successful research careers is often that there are senior researchers who tell you or help you to write your first grant. So there's your supervisor who tells you, well, you can should frame this differently or you should um, real, yeah, you should you should mention this aspect um, of your work as well. Um, because often when you uh, apply for for grant money, um, normally well, often normally you get a rejection, right? And it's uh, really hard to to get this right. Um, and I think if people share their grants, they want uh, others to be able to learn from uh, how they were successful. And I think that's a great um, aspect or a really um, very um, applaudable approach to open science is not to hold back on the things uh, or that is on the text that you created um, that was eventually successful. So does opening up the grants also mean that they are reusable? Right. I think the um, it's important to say that the Open Grants um, website itself does not store uh, the information, does not store the grant document. So you can upload that um, on your own website. So there's a bunch of different links uh, or, or resources where people put their uh, grant documents. Some upload them, as I said, to their own websites. Some upload them to document uh, publication servers uh, where you get a DUI so you can actually properly, properly cite the, um, the document and where it's also hopefully archived, at least in the midterm. And uh, I think then you can and you should give the document a license. And if you award a license, uh, yes, that allows others to build upon that. So I think that's a goal, um, but I'm not aware of, of any occasion where this uh, really happened. So it's more of a, a, a way of learning. Um, I think you said it in your in your presentation or in, in one of your documents. It's it's kind of the hidden curriculum of um, academia. It's it, it's revealing some of the stuff that isn't normally made available. Exactly, hidden curriculum is a great is a great way to put it. Okay, cool, cool. I would also be interested to hear how you guys experienced the eLife Sprint as participants working on this project. Um, well, for me, it was, it was different because it was my first eLife Sprint and it was all virtual. So that was definitely 
an interesting way to do it because generally you you know hang out in a in a room or in, in a set of rooms and you you, you talk to people um, and I think the organizers had done a great job of facilitating you know the various ways one could uh, connect with each other. Um, what was slightly different also was was the span across time zones because Daniel is in Germany and how and I are on the east coast of the states, so there was a difference of about five to six hours. Um, and but I think it still went over pretty seamlessly, um, and so I thought it went pretty well. I did miss the, of course, the in-person meeting of different people, but for me, it was it was pretty successful, and we kind of broke down the tasks and you know did our own pull requests, and then would meet and talk about the you know, the various tasks we needed to do or troubleshoot various things. So I quite enjoyed it. Yeah, same, same for me. I also really enjoyed it. Um, and I couldn't agree more that uh, not being there in person and just sort of being able to look over the table and see if somebody's working really concentrated or not, um, or if you may interrupt them or not, uh, makes things a bit harder. And yeah, the time zone difference meant that we had a rather short amount of time during the day where we were all present. Um, but it also means that when I signed off in the evening and uh, looked at the work that um, Esha and Hao did uh, the next day, they continued the work. So it's really exciting to see what other people do um, while you're sleeping. So um, in terms of the sprint, do you think that uh, what Howe set out to have done during the sprint was achieved? Um, I hope so. <laughs> I mean, I, I think we were all pleased with the product that we got. Um, I felt like it was a good um, discussion on the various, you know, aspects of of the project and where we wanted to go with it. We did want to create like a searchable interface, which we did accomplish. And we even did some, um, you know, indexing of PDFs so people could actually search the, the document itself, which I thought was really cool. Um, so I, I do think that we accomplished a lot. I hope that we accomplished what he wanted. I just don't want to speak for him. <laughs> Yeah, I, I agree to that. I think we accomplished a lot, uh, even if um, so, uh, taking the perspective of somebody who also tried to run a project at a sprint once is you always want to do more. Um, but I think what we accomplished was that um, we, so um, Isha and I, were able to bring something to the table that Howard didn't know about. Right? So um, Isha had some good experiences with um, the Elasticsearch software, so a document a search engine. And uh, I've tried to contribute a bit uh, with my experience in, in R software and uh, containerization using the Docker software. And those were all things that Howe didn't know that well from um, at, at the start of the sprint. So I think that's in that sense, it was a was a real success. And then the features we've, I think we've created really sort of the breakthroughs and now the long and hard path of realizing uh, 
breakthroughs or changing them into real working uh, working implementation and a product uh, has just started. So, Emmy, um, you went through the sprint, and we would like to know how how it worked out, how it was in general, and um, the difference between doing it online versus the last few years that you'd been doing it face-to-face, and also about the projects, so how they developed. Sure. Um, yeah, I think overall the sprint last week went really well. Um, we had you know, various people online at different times. But overall, I think um, checking the numbers, we have around 80 people uh, in the event at different times in total. Um, so that's, that's I think it's a very satisfactory engagement rate for an online event. Um, and during the event itself, you can really feel the energy, um, even just through the screen, um, that people are moving around the different virtual rooms and, there's a lot of work being done um, since we use Slack as a communication platform. You can see the different project channels, the activities and how people are communicating. Um, and they also uh, share regular updates on their projects in, in one of the Slack channels. And so um, we were able to, yeah, feel more of that, that energy that we would otherwise be, you know, feeling in person in the room. Um, but I think, Overall, um, people were very engaged. Um, we've got some initial feedback so far from the participant, and all of them are pretty positive, um, finding it a really rewarding experience that they've learned a lot um, and uh, have formed a meaningful connections. So I think on that end, we've achieved what we set out to do. Um, so very pretty happy about it overall. Yeah. If you were to choose, uh, would you then, I mean, if you could choose, would you then repeat the event in person or online? That's a really interesting question. Um, I think it's, it's already been brought up during the event that there's definite advantage of doing it online. There are folks who, you know, have children at home and wouldn't be able to make that journey maybe trans, uh, across continents to the UK to join the event in person are now able to join just because it was online. It also meant that they, economically speaking, like the event was just a lot cheaper to organize. And so, um, um, and it is more environmentally friendly as well. Uh, that being said, um, we do realize that the online format is quite tiring, um, both for the organizers and for the participants. We have the structure of having three hour working sessions um, and then separate it by an hour break. Um, and we were hoping that, you know, if folks wanted to do some socializing during the hour break, we offered the opportunity for them to do that. But we actually find most people just really went offline or off screen at least during that time because it was just really tiring to look at the screen for more than three hours in a stretch. And so, um, I think it's something that we need to recognize as a, as a constraint of the online version and just sort of, you know, either we put in dedicated time for social um, interactions um, beyond the breaks themselves or just 
acknowledge that this is something that we have to, we have to sort of let go of. That being said, there is still social interactions that happened. Um, I think there was a small community of Brazilians within the, the sprint itself, and they used one of the breaks to um, um, sort of have a mini Brazilian gathering, which is really nice to see. But in general, would you say it's really hard to create like a community social space that is not just about productivity online? Yeah, so it's definitely more difficult. Um, you lose the meal times that we usually have in the physical event, the coffee breaks, the sort of water boiler conversations. We used to have a dinner social and walking tour around the city as well. And that gives folks the chance to get to know each other beyond the productive the productive sessions. And so I think that's still something that we haven't managed to capture in the online version, but it could just be something, you know, it, it depends on what your priorities are as an organizer, right? Like we prioritized um, project development and l the learning experience over the social part of the experience. And so that's the choice that we've made, but I could imagine if those connections and those those social breaks are your priority as an organizer, you could design the event better to cater for that sort of activities and, you know, spend less time on doing the productive things. I guess the bottom line is that you only have this number of hours in a day. And so what I've learned throughout this process is that you really have to ask yourself what is important. Why are you doing this event? What are you trying to achieve? Um, and what you think you're trying to achieve, be it yourself or for your organization, could be different from what the, the participants are trying to achieve. So the project leads come in with a strong vision of trying to develop their projects, and that's what they want to do. The contributors may have a some completely different set of goals, and it's really important that you, as the event organizer, and all these different stakeholders within your event sit down and have that conversation or find some way to be able to put that all on, on in a single space and to map out where your shared goals are. I remember you in the beginning, you were talking about one of the criteria for selecting projects was that you were um, selecting project leads that were willing to learn and change and that one of the great things you said about the sprint is actually when you come in with one idea but you leave the sprint with a complete different idea. Did you notice that happening? Was that something you could observe? Yeah, definitely. I think we've we've set the expectation and the culture for, an, for the event. It's one that we allow people to have that learning process because learning takes time nobody's going to nail it in the first stop, in the first instance right and so we are learning as organizers project leads were learning as well and we set that it was so important for us to have set that culture up so that people didn't feel like they have to nail everything and that they could take that time to learn at their own pace and so what we see in the in the end is that so for example um there are a couple of projects who you know had quite a strong vision of where they were going to get to at the end of the event. But eventually, uh, having interacted with different um, contributors from different sort of uh, approach, with different approaches and perspectives. So project leads working with, for example, UX designers on really looking at what their projects are trying to achieve and um going back to sort of the more basic design 
um, principles and approaches, really taking the step back from the, the software development that they were hoping to see, but rather focus on the design aspects of, of the problem that they're trying to solve and redesigning the solution from the beginning. I definitely saw that with at least two different teams, which I think, again, I, I can't speak the, for the project leads here, but I think they learned a lot in that process. And um, the, the designers were also very happy to have been able to contribute to, to that rethinking. Um, so I think there was a group called A Clean Slate. Um, so this is a project that is a, pl a platform. Um, the project leads wanted to build a platform for uh, folks in the in academia um, who are being bullied um, so that they could share their stories and help each other out that way. So I think they really came in with a strong vision of hoping to build this platform up, hoping to to get you know, to find solutions to some of the technical constraints that they are facing around um, privacy and anonymity, et cetera. So really the focus was on getting this platform running um, and getting a community of people excited about it. But in the end, what so in the first in one of the first sessions, I remember that one of the um, uh, designers in the event joined their group and a couple of uh, researchers as well as contributors. And they all sat together and looked at, and they ended up drawing an, an empathy map. They started drawing empathy maps for uh, folks who are being bullied and folks who are bullies, I believe, and sit down and look at how, what their experiences were, like break that down and to understand how to best help them. So that's something, you know, that was, they, they also got the technical platform running um, in somewhere in the event, but then they, a lot of their time and focus went to building these maps and these collective uh, design canvases that um, perhaps was not something that they were, they would have seen that they would be able to achieve during this event. And I think they had a very enjoyable experience and they did find it, you know, rewarding in terms of what they've learned and what they've achieved. I'd like to say a big thank you to, to you all for doing this and also um, for for the team behind this. I think it really was something that was, first of all, not creatable by one person, <laughs> but definitely was lifted into a completely different level simply because of the people who are so passionate about this community and the event and were so generous with their time and their knowledge and their skills to help help each other out. I think what I've learned from this experience really is that the logistical details are important. The design, the thinking around it and the planning for it is obviously crucial to it, to facilitating it, to make to allowing it to become an event and a successful event. But ultimately, it's down to the people that we put together and work with. things about them is that these projects are all kind of standing for themselves so they're being collaborated with being collaborated on with different people contributing towards it to make it more user-friendly but they're all somehow 
you know, their, their own website or their, their own software. So it's a program that only if people start using them, are they going to have any effect? So I think that's also one of the things that's really important is that maybe because we're doing a podcast about it, and I'm sure other people have somehow covered it, but that people know about these different kind of projects to be able to see if that aligns with their research ethics or their research that they're doing, if they can somehow use it. So SciGen report in having a post-published platform to share the state of affairs on reproduction studies is only going to have some sort of effect if people use it. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that was um, how Cassio kind of ended the interview with us. Um, his his last word on it was, you know, there's a tipping point when it becomes there's enough users for it to become um, like a really viable aspect of the way science is done. But for that to happen, you need a lot of users. And I think um, you know, Asia and Daniel also touched on on that in terms of, you know, the more people who are willing to share the grants, uh, the more useful their tool becomes. Um, and also, you know, the more people who are involved in things like the Sprint, um, in general, the more people who, who are using these type of tools, the, the more it's, it's got some kind of longevity. Um, yeah, so go take a look at all the cool projects and see if you maybe next year would like to be part of the eLife Sprint. Yeah, it's really well organized. Whether it happens, um, hopefully by uh, next September, it should happen in person, or at least it, partly. But um, whether it happens online, online or in person, it's a, it seems like a, a really fantastic event to be part of. And the all the links that you need are in the show notes. So that's it from us today. Once again, this is an EU-funded project, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, write us an email at orion at mdc-berlin.de or on Twitter at OOSP underscore Orion. And uh, if you've got any suggestions for guests or you yourself would like to be on the show, please don't hesitate to get in touch. The music was composed and produced by Fabio Miguel. And the sound mixing was done by Paolo Oliveira. We thank you very much for joining us, and we hope to join you again soon. Bye for now.